Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Hey, when was the last time you um, ventured into the attic? Yeah, or maybe um, not the attic, maybe the basement, or maybe your storage unit. How about that closet in the spare room? Yeah, um, I, uh, I, I found a box yesterday. <clears throat> I'm just going to go ahead and confess. Um, it's, it's stuff I haven't seen for decades, and it's, it's, not, it's not things I need. I don't know why I kept it when I kept it, uh, but I certainly don't need to keep it any longer. So um, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. And we're going to be talking here about the headline news of the day. We bring the mind of Christ to bear. We've got several guests related to the um, ongoing uh, challenges, uh, the war now between Israel and Hamas, a terrorist organization that rules in the Gaza Strip. So, um, so that's uh, coming up in just a moment. But we always lead off with the Word of God. We want to get into the Word of God, that the Word of God would get into us before we get out there into the world that He so loves. And we use the Faith Radio Growing Your Faith verse of the day as, um, you know, as our text. And so uh, as I'm reflecting on Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I uh, I have this box, right? <laughs> I also have clothes that uh, are in my closet that I literally have not worn for 15 years. And so I just want to come before you as uh, a confessor. Uh, I've got files from my college days. I've got notes from courses I took early in ministry 30 years ago now. I've got random pieces of paper scribbled on that, you know, are are just, yeah, you know, they're just in boxes. Like they're they're called blog fodder or something like that or writing fodder. Well, you know, they're they're not, not, not really anymore. Now, I am not a hoarder, but I'm going to confess that Jesus's words today speak to me. I am storing up things that I might consider treasures here on earth. Um, and and I don't and I don't need to be. I don't need to be storing them up here. I need to be storing up treasures in heaven. So this is um this is my encouragement today to do everyone a favor and um give it all away now. All of it. Whatever it is, like whatever is in your storage unit or in your basement or in your barn or in your attic. And you're not using it, like you're not actually using it, give it away. I mean, whatever it is, some collection, some, I mean, well, particularly if it's like a piece of family history and you want to have it preserved, give it away now to someone who loves you because they want to hear the story. They want to know why you love this thing and why you want to see it preserved. 
Um, and so give it away, but give it away now. Don't wait until you're not here to share the story of, uh, of, of the thing, of the place. Like, go ahead and put the ring on the finger of the next generation or pin the brooch to their blouse. Like, give them the watch on the chain or the family silver. Pass along those pieces of art in your collection or maybe those vinyl records and tell the stories now. Don't wait. What good is all that stuff doing anyone anyway in your attic or in your basement or in the closet of the spare room or under your bed or in the barn? What 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 good is it doing anyone? And if you're saying to yourself, well, they don't want it, then find someone who does. Because remember, you know, right, everyone's, uh, you know, one man's uh, trash is another man's treasure. All right. So all of this comes to light as we watch people carrying all that they can, fleeing um, northern portions of Gaza, um, as we see images of the stream of people moving north toward the U.S. southern border, as we have watched um, for more than a year now, people leaving their homes in Ukraine and carrying all that they could um, to, to safer borders, people with little more than the clothes on their backs, So the images of human beings on the move, traveling light, ought to serve as a testimony to each of us and all of us. I'm thinking about Jesus sending out the 12 in Luke 9 or sending out the 70 in uh, in Luke 10. You know, he's talking about the plentiful harvest and he's talking about sending out laborers and and he's talking about traveling light. Don't carry a bunch of extra stuff with you. Um, Speak peace, share peace, share the gospel, do good. Um. In the, in the Great Commission, uh, it's no different. So I uh, encourage you to travel light today and to unburden yourself of the things of this earth that you might uh, be storing up treasures in heaven where, where they're going to last forever. Okay, uh, President Biden has now uh, concluded his trip to the Middle East, which ended up just being um, a trip to Israel. His other portions of his trip were canceled. But one of the things that he did while he was in Israel was visit with first responders and survivors of um, the Hamas attack on Saturday, October the 7th. And and the president um, shared comments that, including this, uh, quoting an Irish poet named, uh, well, William Butler Yeats, you would remember this. Too long a suffering makes a stone of a heart. Too long a suffering makes a stone of a heart. That's what the president said. And then he said, the thing I find um, most remarkable is that none of your hearts have turned to stone. Um, a heart of flesh is is a genuine gift of God, and that is a biblical reference, whether or not um, everyone who was hearing it knew uh, knew the reference, the, the truth stands. And so we want to be people who retain our hearts of flesh and do not um, exchange them for hearts of stone, even as we encounter the tremendous difficulties of the days in which we live. One of the other things the president said, and I'm going to let you listen to uh, just the shortest bit of audio here related to it, because the audio quality is not good. But I want you to hear this from the president's own mouth. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. And I think the security and safety of Jews worldwide is anchored in the continued vibrance of the state of Israel. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Zionist is a uh, very particularly important word 
Um, the president repeated it more than once. He has said it on occasions throughout his political career. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Um, but the safety and security of the Jews and the the state of Israel, um, he he highlighted in bold relief in those comments. And obviously not everyone in the world um, agrees with the president um, on that point. And so I thought it would be helpful today to um, talk with somebody who really does understand the biblical history of the region that we're talking about and the history of the peoples we're talking about and the complexity of all of it. So Glenn Durer is going to join us. He's the chair of history and government. He's a professor in international affairs at Cedarville University. Um, and uh, and he is a person who has been um, focused on issues in the Middle East for a long, long time. And so he's going to join us next to unpack some of what's happening today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Glenn Durer is joining us now. He's a citizen of three countries. We're going to let him uh, talk about that in here in just a moment. But he um, he serves at the intersection of Christianity and um, and really foreign affairs and international um, relationships. He's the chair of history and a government uh, and a professor of international affairs at Cedarville University. Glenn, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be with you. You're a citizen of um, three countries, but you're a citizen of one kingdom. Amen. Under Philippians mm. 3.20, we're citizens of heaven. does not negate the responsibility here on earth to share the love of Jesus Christ, but it's yeah, kind of a, a neat privilege that I have here on earth to have lived and gained citizenship in, in three countries and uh, really traveled widely. I've been very, very blessed. So that's the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. And so um, let's let's focus our attention on what is happening in the Middle East. Um, you're welcome to bring folks up to, uh, you know, up to speed um, on events uh, as they are currently unfolding, um, if you want to do that. Or you could just talk with us about the root causes, like what's what's really deeply behind all of it. Absolutely. So the central component is who has right to the land? Is it a Jewish state? Is it an Arab state? Is it something in between? Is it someone else's? And I guess historically, all of those have been true because if we go back in time, Gaza is approximately maybe a quarter of the historical Philistia or the Philistines. And so these are peoples that have long been at loggerheads, but at the same time, there have been periods where Jews and Arabs have lived next to each other and peaceably and uh, with reasonable relationships. It was long governed by the Ottoman Empire, what is essentially Turkey today. But as the dying man of Europe in the 19th century that regularly lost wars to Russia, uh, it eventually capitulated at the end of World War I, and it became the British Mandate of Palestine. We then have a range of different treaties and declarations that tried to divide the land, in particular the Peel Commission of 1937, but also the UN Partition Plan of 1947 that would have divided uh, fairly reasonably the land between Jews and Arabs. Jews, uh, you mentioned Zionism. If we go back to the World Zionist Organization in the late 1890s, encouraging Jews from different parts of Europe to move to the Holy Land for protection uh, if we think of Psalm 122, verses 6 and 7, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but also for security within its towers and within its gates, 
that is a, a key one to continue praying today. But um, the Palestinian territory is divided into two sections. You have the West Bank that has been relatively peaceable in the last couple of decades. I've been through it relatively recently. Uh, there are a lot of Palestinians that travel into Israel to work, upwards of 140,000 each day. And so there's a lot more peace in that area than we might imagine. But Gaza is a very different story. It has Israel withdrew from it in 2005, and Hamas has been in control since 2008. Hamas does a lot of things. It, it governs, it provides dental and medical, social services, etc. But it is also a terrorist organization. It does uh, conduct acts of terror. It supports other terrorist organizations. And it has been formally deemed by a number of governments around the world as a terrorist organization. And so when they conducted a brazen and heinous attack across Israel's border, now confirmed over 1,400 dead, it, it really shocked many people because it came on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, effectively the fourth Arab-Israeli conflict, and it too was on a religious holiday, and it too was a time when uh, a lot of security and intelligence was down, and uh, it was because a lot of people were home with their families, and so this has really shocked the world, uh, and to have a, an attack that coordinates cyber and space along with land, air, and sea, it really is technologically advanced as well. And so a lot of different moving pieces in this conflict that go back to historic biblical times. There's always a temptation, Glenn, to um, to equate what the Bible says about Israel and to Israel um, and today. And so when we come back, can you help us understand what, if any, difference there is between the Israel to whom God is speaking in the Bible and the Israel today. Could we sift through that a little bit? Sure. Great. We're talking with Glenn Durr. He is uh, the chair of history and government at Cedarville University. And we're talking, we're trying to understand, we're trying to get a grip and find our footing in the ongoing, um, not only conversation, but uh, open warfare um, between Israel and the terrorist organization Hamas, which controls the Gaza Strip. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. 
If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Are you wondering um, what the connection is between what the Bible says about Israel and the people to whom the Bible is directly speaking uh, in its first voice, um, in its first iteration to the people of Israel, and what all that means to the people of Israel today and the place we call Israel today? So helping us um, you know, unpack some of this is Glenn Durr. He's the chair of history and government at Cedarville University. So, Glenn, um, I know that it might sound like a pedestrian question, but what's the difference between Israel and the Bible and Israel today? Go back to the book of Genesis and the foundings of the world, and we have the creation of three key institutions. One is the family, the second is the church, and thirdly, the government. And in that aftermath, we have a covenant to Israel, uh, to Abraham, uh, to uh, extend his descendants. And out of that, we have a a promised land, a a holy land that is then in place as well. And so evangelical Christians, myself included, wrestle with to what extent is the Bible speaking directly about Israel as it existed vis-a-vis Israel today. And there are a range of different views, but it centers around a theology called replacement theology. That is, uh, is, is the central people to whom the Bible is speaking. Is it still Israel? Is it now Christian spread? What role does Israel, Israel play? And so it gets pretty complicated in there. But I think at the very least, even if people were to say, yes, there's a replacement theology, the church has replaced Israel, that there is still a special place for Israel in Scripture. We have a lot of uh, end times prophecies, and, and that too is is complicated, but centering around Jerusalem. And so I think at the very least, we can say, even under replacement theology, there is still a prominent place for Jews, a prominent place for Jews that will become believers in Christ and for an Israel. So if you're listening right now and you're like, hey, I'm not familiar with this idea of replacement theology, it may be that you're familiar with uh, a covenant theology. Maybe you've heard the word dispensationalism. Maybe you've heard the term um, uh, successionism or the, the the idea that we live in these successive periods of history. Um, and so there, there is an ongoing conversation among Christians, as Glenn has just laid out, uh, about, you know, who, who is it? And so we know that Israel is the true vine. Um, we know that we are engrafted into, um, into the true vine through Jesus Christ. Um, we also know that Israel plays a role and is, uh, is part of the discussion um, in the book of Revelation and other prophecies throughout the Bible that point to the quote-unquote end times. Um, So the conflicts today that we're witnessing, um, specifically between Hamas and Israel, the possibility of Hezbollah joining the conflict, um, actually I think, you know, I would say already joining the conflict, but maybe not at the level to which um, that could still happen. Uh, The reality that Iran is really the the energy and the money behind both Hamas and Hezbollah. 
Um, and the, there was this prospect of a growing peace through the Abraham Accords. Can you just talk a little bit about the the geopolitics of of all that's going on? There's a lot of different players. Sometimes it's hard to sort it all out, but maybe it's not as complex as it first appears. Yes, the question is very incisive because in some ways, even if we go back to the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and as difficult as it was with both Egypt and Syria simultaneously invading Israel, the good news thereafter is that Egypt and Israel signed a peace agreement in 1979 that was furthered by Jordan in 1994. And really, under the Abraham Accords of 2020, we've seen a growing number of historically Arab, Arabic-speaking countries, predominantly Muslim countries, signing normalization agreements with Israel, from the United Arab Emirates to Bahrain, Sudan, and then the next year, Morocco. And the key piece in all of this is that the largest Sunni Muslim country in the region, uh, outside of Egypt being Saudi Arabia, was reportedly under the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman getting closer and closer to coming on board with the Abraham Accords as well. And it really would have been a dramatic change. Iran and Saudi Arabia have historically been on opposite sides of the chessboard of the Middle East and on different sides of Islam as well. And so the timing of all of this is very intriguing because with historic Israel-Hamas skirmishes, wars in, say, 2008, 2014, 2021, usually there's some level of provocation that Hamas can point to to say, okay, this is why we're firing an advanced number of rockets into Israel. But this time there was just very, very little uh, that that you know, one could point to in terms of Israel's actions to say anything. Uh, and with it... Um, Part of the thinking is that Iran has guided Hamas that it has long been supporting, supplying, etc., to engage violently with Israel to derail the Abraham Accords. And it looks like in the short term that has happened because governments across the quote-unquote Arab street have spoken out against Israel's actions despite the fact that it was heinously and unprovoked and and subject to an unprovoked attack that killed over 1,400 of its citizens and then and, and guests and some 6,500-plus rockets and missiles into its country. And so a very, very brutal attack, but the, the timing is, is, is certainly, I think, in tandem to derail peace talks. You mentioned as well Hezbollah, which is a, a separate terrorist organization that operates out of the southern portion of Lebanon, and it, too, for years has received funding from Iran, more than Hamas, and it has amassed some 150,000 rockets and missiles. And I have long opined in my classes when lecturing to my students on Israel, just why is Hezbollah gathering in these types of numbers missiles and rockets that are capable of hitting every major Israeli city? which, by the way, is the size of New Jersey. It's not a big country by any means. It, it has a small landmass, and so it has become increasingly a two-front war with Hamas generally in the, the south conducting most of the attacks. But we need to keep our eyes on Hezbollah as well in the, in the north because 
this could get very messy, and Israel is certainly going to defend its territory. I think when I uh, when I think about all that's happening in the world, and I think about you know the threats uh, on many many fronts, um, China and and what's going on in Ukraine. When I think about North Korea, when I think about Iran, um, when I think about the tiny, tiny, I mean, geographically tiny nation of Israel fighting a two front war um, and with this enormous um, enemy of, of Iran who is, you know, funding the two fronts of, of, of the war, but would certainly be the larger enemy um, lurking in the background of all of it. I can't, I just can't help Glenn, but, um, but pray prayers of, you know, God, you've got the whole world in your hands. You are sovereign. You are gracious. You are good. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, you know, do you have some prayer directives for us today? Yeah, man, uh, I, I agree. Uh, absolutely. Because, uh, as, as I referenced to, to pray through Psalm 122, uh, it gives us the peace of Jerusalem, but also security with, within its towers uh, is, is a key one. There's a lot changing in Iran, interestingly enough. Uh, there have been major protests around the brutal killing of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old young woman that simply wasn't wearing the hijab correctly. And so Iran has its internal struggles. A number of Missions organizations have also reported large-scale evangelism in Tehran and other major cities in Iran. And so there's, there's something changing there. And yet these are folks that are locked into a brutal government that's been in place since 1979 that really doesn't reflect, I think, increasingly the changing mindset of the people. And so pray for change in Iran. Pray for the gospel to continue to spread because something is happening differently in that country. Pray for the continued peace under the Abraham Accords, because it's been really quite remarkable, but also devastating recently to see it derailed in such a way, uh, because Israel has certainly gained um, a lot of newer friends in all of it. And then to pray for God's sovereign will, because we, we do have instructions, Jesus in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, uh, tells us, instructs us that there will be troubles in, in, in an end time, in a future position, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. There will be calamities on the earth. And so for us as Christians, for ourselves and to sustain our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world as well, because there are going to be challenges and calamities. We We have our share in our country ourselves, but there are certainly a lot of very brutal civil wars and real challenges out there. Glenn, um, thank you so much um, for being with us here today. Uh, as we um, as we make a very brief pivot here to um, just a um, just an acknowledgement of um, of of the news taking place in our own country and around the world, and we await a conversation with Matt Markins about discipling our kids. Let me just set this before you. Um, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. And so we're going to bring child discipleship into focus next, even as we, as the children of God, pray for um, children everywhere. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. 
All right, we're going to talk about our kids. We're going to talk about the faith of our children. Matt Markins is joining us. He's the president of Awana. Child discipleship is the topic. Matt's got a brand new book, The Faith of Our Children, Eight Timely Research Insights for Discipling the Next Generation. Matt, welcome back. Carmen, good to be with you again. So Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Um, That was my prayer pivot to this conversation from conversations related to what's happening in the Middle East. And so I want to bring our focus. I want to turn our focus here toward home. I want to turn it toward our homes, to the children in our homes, but also the children um, to whom we have access in all kinds of our spheres of influence. So if you've got kids, grandkids, neighbor kids, kids in your community, you know, all the kids. We're talking about the discipleship of every child now. So Matt, um, faith formation why is a conversation about faith formation and the faith formation of our children specifically, why is that the most important conversation we could be having today? Well, if you care about the future world that your children are going into, and if you care about who your kids are going to become, I think the question that, that we're all asking is, you know, it's not, it's not are our children being formed it's who or what is forming our children. So if you have a, let's say you have a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 15-year-old today, you probably wonder either consciously or subconsciously, who are they going to be when they're 25, 35, and 45? And the years that we have them when they're younger are the most important years of their formation. So this may be a subconscious thought for some of us or very much on the front of our minds, I think we're all concerned about who or what is forming our children. So um, you guys have been doing a lot of research on this over time. And so um, The Faith of Our Children is a book that really brings together a lot of that research. Uh, Talk talk with us uh, some about that. Um, And I'll I'll read the lead. I'll read the lead from chapter one as as a pivot. The single most unifying insight in our research Um, was this, the lifelong discipleship of our children is our desired outcome. So talk about the research that goes into lifelong discipleship of of our children being our desired outcome, but then you're going to unpack for us, like, like why we're not achieving the goal we're, uh, we're, we're, we're most interested in achieving. Sure. So in 2013, uh, a decade ago, our team at Awana started asking this singular question. So if you can think of a target, like you, you play darts, uh, if you think of the center of that dartboard, the question we've been asking at the core is what is it the church does that leads to lasting faith in children? Now, I'll say that one more time. What is it that the church does that leads to lasting faith in kids? And when I say church, I mean the broader church community. So if you're a parent or a grandparent or a volunteer or a pastor or church leader, collectively together, what do we do that forms lasting faith? So that's really been the driving question for our organization. And I came across this quote the last few years. Uh, It's attributed to Mark Twain, and it says this, it ain't what you know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. (laughs) I think that's, Mm. you know, he's so good with words. And when when I read that quote, I first laughed and then then it suddenly I, it followed with like a bit of a haunting feeling like what are the things in life that I know for sure 
that just are not so. And I think as, as a church community, that's that's relevant to us in this conversation of faith formation, because we operate with kids in terms of the way we run our children's ministries, as if we know that these things that we're doing are going to form their faith. And what we found in the research is that our systems, the culture we depend upon, the infrastructure of our church communities, the systems we're using don't always match what we actually know to be true about faith formation. So if there's one central thought of the book, it's that, A, we know what forms, what tends to form lasting faith, but B, the systems and culture we depend upon don't always support what we know to be true. I love the way um, that you have organized um, the book. So the first part of the book talks about faith formation and the, the faith formation of our children and the primary things that we can invest in that, um, you know, that have the highest return to, to yield that desired outcome. And then the second part of the book is the systems part, these norms and processes and infrastructure, the culture that we can uh, develop in order that um, this faith formation of our kids is not only, you know, not only that it happens, but that it's enduring. So let's um, let's unpack part one, um, if we can. Sure. So what what does winning look like? Like what? What, what what does winning look like? Maybe that's the way I will just phrase uh, the question in terms of this this hoped for outcome. Well, you started you started earlier with the overall our overarching idea. We we all have the shared goal that mm. lasting faith is the desired outcome. Again, whether that's stated or unstated, conscious or subconscious, I think that most parents they want their child to be thriving in their faith when they're thirty five years old. And children's Amen. ministry leaders and, and pastors, they're aiming for that. Um, so, so what are the key ingredients in that? And so, so the, the other two or three chapters in the, the first part of the book have to deal with relationships and Bible engagement and cultural formation. So relationships, we, we say that relationships are the most uh, catalytic factor and Bible engagement is the most foundational factor. So let's talk about those words, catalyst and foundation. This past couple of years, I came across this image uh, of, of a dry field in, in Chile, in South America. Uh, this dry field can sit dormant for years at a time with just nothing. It's desolate. There's appear seemingly no life whatsoever. And then what happens is Chile can get an enormous amount of rain in a very short period of time. And this field that has been nothing but dry dirt and dust for years will spring forth with these beautiful flowers. What's happening there in this image is the same idea of catalyst versus foundational. What's foundational in that field is that underneath the surface, there are these bulbs of flowers. They're lying there. They're not dead. Uh, but but they are foundationally just sitting there under the surface. But when you have this catalyst of the rain, what happens? Those flowers burst forth through the soil and you see that life. And I think that's what we, we're seeing here with the catalyst of relationship and the foundation of Bible engagement. When you have both of them together, loving, caring adult relationships with children and the foundation of Bible engagement, there's something special that happens with child faith formation when both of those factors are combined and present and active in the life of a child. I want to talk about cultural formation um, because there's something, we're all being catechized all the time. We're all being formed all the time. I mean, shaped, yeah. uh, 
conformed to culture. Um, and and we know what Scripture says, like, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Talk with us about cultural formation, and then what is counterformation? Sure. C- cultural formation is what happens when you—it's like, it's like it's a fish swimming in water. Uh, a fish doesn't realize it's swimming in water, but that, that water around it is the fish, metaphorically speaking, is the culture around our children. You, we might give language to some of those cultures as secularism or post-Christian culture, hedonism, naturalism, et cetera. I'm sure you guys discuss these things on your show. But counterformation is what we do to form children in ways that are counter to the culture. This is what we call child discipleship. Jesus said, you know, has a pattern in his speech, what he teaches in the New Testament, where he has said, you have heard it said, dot, 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 but I tell you. That's Jesus's way of saying, you have heard it said, you know, here are the dominant cultures, the dominant ideas that you're used to, but I tell you, then he's going to give them counterformation, which is the gospel and his way of being discipled under him. So what we learned in the research is we learned that that parents and church leaders are both comfortable with equipping children with what they need to face the issues of bullying and loneliness and social media. Those are a few areas that we're really comfortable with. But we learned that there are areas that we're less comfortable uh, with talking with children about. And some of those areas are depression, uh, racial inequality, suicide, self-harm, school shootings, and sexual identity. But what we learned in those areas that I just rattled off is that parents are more hungry and more comfortable with those issues than church leaders are. So what's so fascinating to us is that if you're a church leader or if you have influence in your church, parents are hungry and they're starving for more help on how do we help our kids with depression, the the conversations around race, suicide, self-harm, school shootings, and sexual identity. Those are key areas of cultural formation where church or parents are more hungry for help then the church is ready to, to wade into those areas. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up because this is an opportunity for parents and churches to sit down together to say, okay, how can we equip our kids with these cultural formation issues where they need so much help in today's world? So what do we see? We see opportunity. We see opportunity for church leaders and parents to work together to equip our kids for today's world. Now I know you you want to know, well, what does that mean we do? What do we do in the face of that opportunity? We're going to turn to part two of the book next. We're talking with Matt Markins. He is the president of Awana. His latest book, The Faith of Our Children, Eight Timely Research Insights for Discipling the Next Generation. Um, so what can you do and what can you get your church on board doing? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Matt Markins. He's the president of Awana. You can find tons of resources at ChildDiscipleship.com. 
childdiscipleship.com. Uh, the featured book uh, that we're talking about today is is the latest one, The Faith of Our Children, Eight Timely Research Insights for Discipling the Next Generation. We've talked about uh, part one of the book, which is the faith formation of our children being um, you know, our, our primary desired goal and what relationships and Bible engagement and culture have to do with that. In part two of the book, um, what um, what Matt unpacks for us are those systems, the norms, the processes, the infrastructure. So this is the infrastructure plan part of uh, part of the book. How do we actually build a culture um, that helps us to form the faith of our kids? So uh, so Matt, what's the um, you know unpack maybe the the four points in there um, in terms of this part of the conversation? Okay, so let's zoom up real high and talk about two competing words in the church. So in churches in North America tend to be wired around one of two ideas. One is attractional. The other one is formational. So attract, the attract, attractional ministry is this idea that our church, our church's primary focus is to attract more people to our church, which is about numerical growth. How do we grow the number of people who are attending our church. Then there are other churches that are wired around formation, meaning how can we be formed or discipled in the image of Jesus? And so uh, most churches, not all, I'm by no means saying all churches, but most churches in the U.S. in particular are really uh, wired around this idea of numerical growth. How do we grow numerically? And so what's happening in the church in, in, in the United States, as we become in the last decade, uh, increasingly a culture increasingly marked by secularism, which is about the diminishing of God and have emphasis, emphasis on self. We've become increasingly post-Christian, which means the culture wants the benefits of the Christian faith, but doesn't want the source, which is Jesus, the Bible, and the church. And so what's, what's happened is our culture has become more secular, but our churches are still wired around how do we get more people here? So what's, what's becoming increasingly obvious is that what the church needs most is formation. We need discipleship. We need to be formed in the image of Jesus. So the problem is our systems don't, are, are still wired around attractionalism, and they're not wired for formation. So at a really high level, that's the problem that the church is facing as it relates to the formation of our kids. So there are four key areas that we talk about in the book. One of them is time. One of them is fun. The third one is parents, and the fourth is metrics. So let's just, I'll kick it off with time, Carmen, and then we'll go where you want to go from here. But one thing that's really interesting around time is that kids' pastors say that the most, if, you know, the most beneficial way that they could spend their time is getting relational training and equipping time with parents. But the reality is because of the attractional model the majority of their time is spent on administrative tasks. And no one is saying that we shouldn't have administrative tasks. We have to have, we have, to have all of the administrative tasks happening to, to help a ministry function and operate. But kids' pastors are grieving and lamenting the fact that the thing that they could do that would be most effective to help disciple a child is to equip and to train a parent or to equip and to train a volunteer but the reality is only a small fraction of their time is being spent that way because they're just overburdened with administrative tasks. So that's just one example of how our systems in the church don't match what we know to be true about child faith formation. So I, I'm just going to make an observation that that's a body issue. That's a body of Christ issue. 
Um, yes. to imagine, to imagine that the person, you know, who has a business card that says children's ministry leader or, you know, children's discipleship director or whatever the lingo is at your church, to imagine that that's the person who should be doing all the administration, that, that's a body issue for the body of Christ. So somebody's listening right that's now correct. and you have the gift of administration. You have a history of administrative leadership or administrative service in, in some, in some way, shape, or form outside of the church, you need to go volunteer today. Today. You need to call whoever is the director of children's ministry at your church, and you need to say, I I have heard we have a body problem and that you are being forced to spend too much of your time on administration. That's actually my gift. It's my experience area. How can I do administrative tasks for you that will free you up to disciple parents who can then disciple their kids? That's the question that's I correct. want you I want you to like after listening to this conversation today, that's what I want you to actually go and do. Um well, fun. Come, come, yeah. yeah. I do fun. want to talk yeah, about, talk about fun. Yeah, I do want to, Yeah, let's talk about fun. I mean, we want our kids to have fun, but fun is not really the objective. Well, yeah, fun is universal with children. You 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 probably like myself have had the 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 privilege of being able to travel the world and go on mission trips different parts of the, of the world. Everywhere you go, children are going to having fun. You can tell the kids to not have yes. fun and they're probably going to have more fun in rebellion. Yes. Don't right? laugh. Like tell them not to laugh. Don't laugh. We can't no laughing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so, so why are we so missing the mark we, on this? Well, what we discovered, you know, we we like to say if 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 fun was a fire, what logs are we using to stoke the fun fire? <laughs> like, like, like it's not, it's not a, you know, of course we're going to have fun. Of course, kids ministry is going to be fun. And to some degree, even by design. So it's not a matter of should fun be a part of our kids ministry. It's what logs are we using to stoke that fire? And so what we've realized is that kids ministry, if, if we continue to make fun, one of our chief objectives we're sort of just out of touch with the times. Like we're at a time when when children are inundated with entertainment and edutainment. Uh, fun is not their deepest need. What they're really looking for is engagement. They're looking to be engaged relationally, uh, mentally, emotionally, you know, cognitively. They want to be engaged. And we we keep in children's ministry. We're kind of marked by this goofiness an obsession mm. with entertainment. You go to a children's ministry convention and walk the exhibit hall. It, it, mm-hmm. It's overwhelmingly a, a lot of goofiness, a lot of silliness. And I think we're just to the point where that, while that's happening simultaneously, look at what's happening in the education system, the legal system, entertainment system around uh, you know, trans and all these other issues. The church is beginning to be kind of out of step with the times because yeah. we're not giving the children what they need in today's world. All right. I know if you're listening, you're energized. Um, you want to be uh, engaged in child discipleship, not only at your church, but in your community and with your own kids and grandkids. Childdiscipleship.com. That's your one-stop uh, one stop shop for, uh, for all things child discipleship. Matt Markins, thank you so much for being with us today. The book is The Faith of Our Children. Um, you guys uh, check it out because we didn't get to the part about parents or metrics, and obviously both of those are really important. And there's a letter for your pastor at the end of the book that uh, is really a remarkable start for the conversation. All right. Um, there's a lot going on in the world. I know there's a lot going on in your life. Um, and so take a deep breath oh, because the, uh, the Holy Spirit is available and active. God is closer to you than your next breath. 
He desires to breathe into you all that you need today um, for the agenda that he knows uh, he has set before you. There's some divine appointments that God has set that you don't even have on your calendar yet. So I want you to have margin enough to do those, to engage in those conversations, to be genuinely present with others. And so if you haven't done so already, get into the Word of God, that the Word of God might get into you before you get out there into the world that He so loves. We do have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. I know uh, many of you have been anticipating the conversation that we're going to have with a pastor from Gaza. Um, uh, Hannah Massad served as a pastor at the Gaza Baptist Church um, and the Christian Mission to Gaza. He now lives in Connecticut, and so a little easier to get um, than uh, than if he were uh, in Gaza right now. So we're going to talk with him at the top of the next hour. So thank you for um, spending this time with me. I hope you will stay tuned for another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.